Please remain standing for this reading from the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It just got way quieter in here. Yeah. It's usually what happens. It's okay. We love kids. Our community group has like all of the kids in it, and we all just mash into my house, and it's last, and it's loud. You know, wooden floors, it is loud, but it is good. And that's a good thing because it is a wonderful thing to remember that we get to sow into the next generation and what that looks like. That one of the ways that Christianity has continued to impact the world is through faithful parents raising up faithful kids. And that continues to happen. And so we're so thankful for the kids here and all that they do and even the uh, distractions that they may bring from time to time. But with that, let's go ahead and turn to the book of John. John chapter one, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 18 specifically. We'll kind of hone in on those. This is one giant epilogue, or, or excuse me, prologue. I should say epilogue comes at the end. But a prologue to the book of John. Um, and maybe even how it's written, it almost seems like maybe he like wrote it after he finished. I don't know if you do that. I do that with my sermons. I like write the sermon first and then do the introduction so that it all lines up a little nicer. So this whole, these 18 verses here are so beautiful and poetic. I was thinking back even this morning, like one of the first times that I really sat down to read these, I was actually in a college class, in a biblical interpretation class, and I remember tearing up in the back of the classroom because we were talking about John chapter 1, 1 through 18, and it just is this beautiful passage where he's using all this different imagery for Jesus, and I'm going to spoil it for you. You can go and read it sometime, but the big reveal doesn't come until verse 17. In verse 17, it tells us, but grace and truth came to us through Jesus Christ. But he doesn't use the name for Jesus until verse 17. These 17 verses of calling the word and light and life and all that he was doing and all that's happening is this beautiful, really strategic, poetic piece of literature that we have right here in the very beginning of the book of John. And it's such a beautiful thing. And it's unlike the, the other Gospels like Matthew and Luke. When we talk about Christmas stories. They really give kind of the traditional things we think about at Christmas, right? We talk about wise men and the, what your nativity scene is going to look like. Those really come from Matthew and Luke. But then you have John. And that's a really helpful place that talks about some of that familiar and forgottenness that we've been talking about in this Christmas story. And one of those things that I think we sometimes forget about Jesus that John really helps us see in John chapter 1 is that Jesus has always existed. That Jesus is fully God, fully man, but being fully God, he's always been a part of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit isn't like that came on the scene when Jesus showed up and being born, but, but the Trinity was something that always existed. Is as weird as that is to think about, eternity past, having no beginning, God has no beginning And Jesus has no beginning, that he actually left his throne in heaven so that he might come and be with us. He didn't just start existing like we do, you know, like when we come into this world, but he existed before that. He's different than we are in that kind of way. And those are one of the things that we forget, and we see that in what our scripture reading was this morning in John chapter 1, verses 
1 through 5, that he was the word. And it's talking about him that in the beginning he was there and he is a part of the creative process in the world and helped create the world with the Father, that he is one of the ways that happens. And this helps us see that Jesus, his role in the Godhead is he is what makes God knowable to us. He brings God, this transcendent, amazing, infinite God that we could just never perceive on our own. He does that. He makes it so that God can be known. And he leaves his throne on high and he comes and he, and he lives a life that we could not live and dies our death in our place. And he has come to bring us something. The thing that I want us to see this morning is that he's come to bring us grace. We're going to see that in our passage as we read it. You're going to see that theme. You're going to hear that word grace several different times. That Jesus has come to bring grace. And I think there are three ways that we can see that. He has come to bring grace and that in him we can have a new birth. Grace that in him we can see the glory of God and grace that we, through him, that we can actually know God. So that's what I want us to look at this morning as we look at John chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. I want to read that chunk of scripture for you before we jump in. It's the true light, gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was of he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, Who's at the Father's side? He has made him known. What an awesome set of verses that we get to walk through this morning. And so, first, I want to see, just taking those first couple verses, 9 through 13, that Jesus has come to bring grace, and in that grace, we have been given new birth. You can see there in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. We, we know that this is Jesus, and, and in the verses before, that, that verse that we read, that this light was life, and the life was the light of men, and, it, and it's come for all people, all that would have him would be a part of this. And I think one thing that we need to see, and I, as I was studying this text, is that when Jesus comes to bring us grace, and he comes to bring us light, and he comes to bring us life, that he's not just bringing these things as if they're like presents that he totes along with him, right? Jesus isn't some kind of like elaborate uh, gift giver who's just come and just like, here's a gift for you and you get a gift and you get eternal life and you get, right? Like that's not how that works. But when he comes to bring us grace and he comes to bring us light and he comes to bring us life, that he is the light, that he is the life of men, that he in his fullness, we're gonna talk about, he is grace. See, what Jesus has come to bring us is himself, as Christians, what's so different about us and a lot of the other worldviews in this world is the worldviews of this world are just that. They're a worldview. They're a philosophy. They might be a way of life. They're a, a way of thinking about things. But that's not what God came to bring us. 
God came to bring us himself. God came to bring us a person. And that is incredible. That is something that is so meaningful. And so then when we see here, when, when John starts talking about, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, talking again that he has existed beforehand, yet the world did not know him. That when Jesus comes, he comes to bring himself, he's not just talking about some kind of cognitive awareness of Jesus. It's not saying the world just like didn't know he existed. They didn't know he was there. He's talking about relationally. The world did not know him intimately. The world did not have a relationship with him. They were rejecting him. We know from our sermon last week and from our passage last week, they were fully aware of him. Herod knew but he didn't know him. He knew that he was there, the world. We see here that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So not only did the world not receive him, but even his own people, the Jews, they did not receive him. We can think of last week, Herod brings the chief priests and the scribes and says, where would this Messiah be? Where would this king be? And they know exactly where he's supposed to be, but they don't go see him. They don't go worship him because they have not received him. They do not know him. See, what he's talking about is relationally. Do they know him for who he is? Do they worship him and receive him? And John is saying that the Jews and the Gentiles did not do this. See, as, as you would read this, as a Jewish reader, you're used to being told the world exists in two categories, Jews and people who are not Jews, Israelites, Gentiles. That's the categories that they would see the world in. But John is reframing those categories. He's saying that's not how you have to think about this anymore. The categories that you're now going to see people are those who know him and those who do not. See, whether it's the world that rejects him or even his own people who have rejected him, they're now in the same boat. They're apart from God. They don't know him. They don't know him relationally. But through Jesus, everyone, everyone, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your background, no matter your sin, no matter your failure, you have the ability to come and know him. You can come to him and know him relationally and intimately. And that's what John is setting up. And he's telling them, listen, these are the categories, those who know him and those who don't. Because there in verse 12, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. To believe in his name is not some kind of weird superstition about the syllables of Jesus. I even told you a couple weeks ago, Jesus isn't even what he went by. Not those syllables. He would have went probably by something like Yeshua, right? That's not what we're saying. We're talking about his character and his nature, who he is. You think back in the Bible, Moses is given the Ten Commandments, and that third commandment is to not take the Lord's name in vain. And a lot of times we boil that down way too small and we just say like that just means don't use God's name as a cuss word and then you're good. But that's not really what you would have been talking about there. They wouldn't even say God's name, let alone use it as a curse word. But what we see is they were, what they're saying is don't do something in the name of God that God would not approve of. Don't not do something in the name of God that God would tell you to do. 
to do something in his name is to carry with him all that he is, his nature, his attributes, his very character. So when we say, do you believe in the name of Jesus? We're saying, do you believe in Jesus for who he is? Do you stand for the things that Jesus stands for? Are you against the things that Jesus would be against? Do you want to live a life that looks like the life of Jesus? That's what it means to really say you believe in his name. It's not just this kind of fairy tale, do I believe in this thing cognitively, but do I actually know him? Do I have a relationship with him? Have I received him in all that he is? Do I want to be like him? And when we do that, something amazing happens. We're given the right to be children of God. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we trust in him, we have the right to be children of God. And to become a child, you have to be born. Born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. We must be born of God. We must receive a new birth in him. So we look at that, what does it mean to be born of the blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man? I would look and say, I think he's calling out these Jews who would find righteousness in their ethnicity, their blood. I got the right bloodline. I can trace this back. I'm a direct descendant of Abraham. Nailed. I'm this. I'm in. I'm on the in crowd. And John is saying, no, your ethnicity is not there. In American culture, we do that. I'm a Christian. Why? Well, I'm American. What else would I be? That's not what makes you a Christian. That's what makes you give you the right to be a child of God. That doesn't make you born again, just being American, just being born into a Christian home, right? We, we would tell our kids that. I tell my son, you're not a Christian yet. You've got to follow Jesus. You, you've, you've got to, to do that. And, and one day I pray with him every night, God, please change his heart that he would come and know to follow you and my other babies as well. But we would say, one day they'll have to, they will have to choose to follow God. They're not just in because mom and dad are in. We can say the same thing about the will of the flesh. The will of the flesh, just because you're good deeds, just because you think you do a lot of really good things. There is not a cosmic balancing scale that's just like, if I do enough good stuff to outweigh my bad stuff, then I'm in. That's not what God does. In fact, God makes it really clear. That's a good thing for you because you would never outweigh your bad stuff. You don't see, if you think that's true, you just don't see the truth about yourself. We would never do that. We'll never be able to make it on our own by the will of our flesh, nor even on the will of man. Even when other people are saying to you, man, you're just a good person. You are such a good person. You are so wonderful. You do all these wonderful things. You, you, are, you just, everything about you, listen, that does not make you right before God. Even what other people say about you. What makes you right before God is you come in by the grace of Jesus. You receive him and you believe in his name. You get wrapped in his righteousness and you don't hold on to your own righteousness. We come in on his coattails and nobody else has, and that is wonderful and good, good news. Because as we deal with that, we can see that. What's so awesome is the Bible gives us such a good example of somebody who saw that reality, who saw that those kind of three things, that their bloodline, their ethnicity, how they, what they were born into, their own good works, or even what other people said about them wasn't good enough. There was a man named Paul in the Bible, and in the 
book of Philippians chapter three, what he tells us at the beginning of that book is that he did all of those things. He says, I am a Hebrew among Hebrews. I am of the tribe of, like he knows, he can trace out his bloodline. He knows exactly where it is. He says, I was a Hebrew among Hebrews. I had the right bloodline. He then even goes, and I was circumcised on the eighth day. I did the obedient thing. Literally, my flesh was cut in a way that was supposed to make me acceptable before God. And I'm telling you, the will of my flesh wasn't quite, it wasn't enough. And even among that, he said, and I was a Pharisee, recognized by everybody for my knowledge of the law. And in a matter of zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I had all the things. Everybody looked at Paul. At the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts, they came and laid their coats at his feet. He was overseeing that. He had every right and everything to say, I am right before God. And he meets the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. He says this, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not as having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through have faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what John is talking about when he talks about this belief. When he talks about receiving Jesus in his name, it depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's what it sounds like when a person is completely enamored and captivated by the grace of Jesus. They look at their own accomplishments and say, they are rubbish and none of them matter, but I would give it all up to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection because that's what I'm after. And I don't know about you guys, but I read that and I read Paul and I think, man, Paul, you are a good dude. (laughs) You are so much better than me. Because I still struggle, even as a Christian, finding my own righteousness in who I am, my own upbringing, who my parents are, my own accomplishments. And if I'm really honest, oh yeah, definitely, and what other people think about me. I can look at those three things over and over and over again, and I slide into a life of pride and arrogance confession, I really want people to think that I'm a good pastor. And then God does really good things to me, like allows me to mispronounce the word myrrh, like five times in one sermon. What a humbling moment listening to that sermon audio this week. Why would God do that? Because he loves me. And he loves you in the same kind of way and he'll humble you every time so that you will count all of your own righteousness as rubbish for the sake of knowing him and the power of his resurrection. So what do I do? What do I do 
when I'm stuck in that moment of, of pride, when it sneaks its way back in, and listen, it looks a lot differently for a lot of us. Some of us, pride arouses us to, we pretend like we're the ruler of the world. We come down, we're harsh with other people. For others, we throw a pity party. <laughs> pride can lead you to that as well. And, and, and all the, oh, woe is me, and those kind of things. And, and we can see that. So what do I do when I'm there? Listen to what happens next in the book of Philippians. Verse 12. Because even Paul, if we stopped at verse 11, we would think that he's really great. But listen to what he says. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. And I think that's amazing. Verse 7 he, or excuse me, at verse 12, he says, I have not already obtained it. But verse 16, he says, I'm holding fast to that which I've already obtained. See, that's the Christian life. It's already and not yet. You've been fully justified before God, and there's nothing that's going to change that. And yet, you know, in this life, I am still a work in progress. And what he's showing us there is God is so committed to you that in any way where you don't see you need change, God is promising that he's going to reveal it to you. God is promising that he's going to reveal those things in your heart. He's promising he's going to show, Josh, you have this idol. You care too much about what other people think about you. But he's so committed to me that even though I fail over and over and over again, he's going to show me where I need to continue to grow. That is a wonderful God. He is so much more patient than I am. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, and you should. I hope you wrestle these things. Why is God so committed to us? Why does he care so much about me that even after I know what is right and I still mess it up, he is saying, I'm going to reveal it to you and I'm going to keep working it in you and I'm not going anywhere. Why is God like that? Right there in verse 12. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's why he's committed to you. That's why he's not letting you go. That's why he's going to continue to work in you and sanctify you and make you more and more like Jesus because you are his own. Or in the way that John would say it, he has given you the right to become a child of God. And as any parent knows, you'll never give up on your kids. And don't we have good news? God is saying, you're my kid you're my child. I am never going to give up on you. I am never going to give up on you. Because when I live this life, I look at this and I just think, ugh, I just mess it up over and over and over again. I read this in the book of John and I know my righteousness isn't found in those things, yet I get tempted and pulled away and I become arrogant and prideful. But he loves me so much that even in the midst of all that pride, he's going to take me back every single time. Time. Every single time. 
See, what we're not saying when we talk about the new birth is that somehow life just gets really easy and you don't struggle anymore. What we're saying in the new birth is that you see where you need to struggle. And what you need to do is what Paul does. Press forward. Take the next step. Follow that call to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Keep walking. That's what he's calling you to do. For all of us, that next step looks so different. For some, it's baptism or church membership. It's taking on a volunteer role with the church. It's taking a chance, sharing the gospel with that person over these holidays that you're really afraid to do it with. It's telling that family member or your friend, hey, you know what we celebrate at Christmas that's even better than all of this? And it's doing it through your shaking and your trembling and your stuttered words and when you mispronounce important things. <laughs> and just doing it again. It's making a commitment as the new year allows us to do to say, what does it look like for me to live a more faithful and fruitful life for Jesus? For everybody who made it to Leviticus in your Bible reading plan last year, it's time to pick up an Exodus this year. And just keep going. Take the next step. That's what faithfulness looks like. It's just a long walk of obedience in the same direction. That's what we want to see. Because when we see that that's what the new birth enables us to do and empowers us to do, that that's what grace lets us do, we will grow to be more and more like Jesus. And as you do that, you're going to see more and more of the glory of Jesus in your life. Which brings us to our second set of verses there, 14 and 15, that we want to see that grace shows us his glory. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was of he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. We see here that that word, it comes from, again, I was talking about the beginning, those first five verses, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and and when he's building on this beautiful poetic thing, and the world became, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a beautiful picture. God put on flesh so that he may dwell among us. That word dwell could be translated as tabernacled. If you know your Old, Old Testament, if not, I'll fill you in. The tabernacle was, was this thing, talk about Bible reading plan, wait till you hit the back end of Exodus. You read about the building of this tabernacle and it's meticulous, the, re, the recounting of it. And you're reading about all these things and it's this gigantic mobile temple. You can think about it because at the time the people of Israel were traveling to the promised land and God was giving them this tabernacle so that he might dwell in the midst of his people and they had to put it all together and this is where God would come to dwell with them. See, before they had built the tabernacle and done the things that God required of them to do so that he could dwell in their midst, Moses would have to set up what was called a tent of meeting but he had to do that outside of the camp outside and away from the people of God. He wasn't able to dwell near them because the holiness of God, the fullness of God, when it was revealed, literally would have killed people. And so God is outside of their camp and outside of their midst. And when they create this tabernacle, when they create this this thing, 
at the end of the book of Exodus, God is able to dwell within the camp, within the people. I want to read that. So what happens in the book of Exodus, again, it's meticulous as you're reading through it, telling about the building of the tabernacle and all these things that they have to do. To modern readers, we get a little sleepy, but what I think is supposed to be happening is it's kind of like building this anticipation, right? It's giving you this, these little details. You're supposed to be imagining in your mind, like, what is this going to look like? What is this going to be like? And you can think of, you know, in a movie or maybe like as music, if you ever listen to music and it kind of starts a little slower and gets a little louder and then the bridge comes in, it's a little louder and then boom, the chorus happens. Exodus 40 is the chorus of the book of Exodus, right? It's the big epic moment. If you're a Coldplay fan, it's a Coldplay fan. It's when all the like ambient music just like, goes in the color yellow and all that kind of stuff, right? That's when all that happens. And that's what's happening in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. It's the very last bit of the, this book. And the tabernacle gets constructed. And listen to what happens. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses, not even Moses, was able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taking up from over them, ah, I lost my place, sorry. The people of Israel would set out, but if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out to the day that they were taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the history of Israel throughout all their journeys. That's miraculous. A a cloud, this pillar of cloud, comes down over it, and by day it's a cloud, by night it's a, a pillar of fire. That's what was leading the people before that. It's just this massive, huge, extravagant thing, and that is the glory of the Lord being shown. And you know what John is telling us? Jesus is more impressive than that. Jesus, the God of this world, wrapping himself in flesh to dwell and tabernacle among you is better than God showing up in a cloud of fire. That's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around. We think, wouldn't it be cooler just to see like that cloud thing? That's not what the Bible tells us. Because you know what happens later with the temple in the Bible? Jesus says, I'm going to tear down this temple and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And they think he's talking about the temple that gets built in Israel. But John tells us, and he was talking about his body, that his body would raise from the dead. And Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away so that my spirit might come. The Pericles, what he calls it in that, in that verse, he might come. And what happens is in Pentecost, the spirit falls down on these people and it says there's tongue of a flame on them. Is that pointing back to that pillar of fire. And in 1 Peter 2, we are told that you are precious stones in which Jesus is the chief cornerstone and you are being built up with one another so that you might be the temple. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells us your body, your body as the Christian is the temple, the dwelling place of God. See, what Jesus did when he wrapped himself in flesh, died for our sin, and rose from the grave, he made it possible that the spirit of the living God might live inside you. That God would come to know and dwell within you. What he's saying is that's even more impressive than fire falling down from heaven, is that God lives in you. 
And that's what we get to see, that he came and he tabernacled and he dwells among us. And when he does that, he is full of grace. John, not John the the evangelist or John, the, the person who's writing this, but John the Baptist, it, it's like this explanation point that he puts it like, yeah, and remember, and John told about him. The word became flesh. It, you know, in, in Greek, it's just like this big, long strand of capital letters. They don't even space out the words. They don't have punctuation. So he gives you this as like a punctuation. This, this thing that in your Bible is probably in parentheses. There's no parentheses there. But John bore witness about him and cried out, this was him who I said, he who comes before me ranks before me because he was before me. He's saying like that's an exclamation point. Like don't you get it? Don't you see? The word became flesh. That's what happened. And I think what can happen so often in our lives is we fail to see Jesus. We're so familiar with Jesus that we're no longer impressed by him. We think about Christmas and we can get so caught up in everything else, we're no longer shocked by him. We're never put in awe in him. It's like this woman in northern France. She's in her 90s. Towards the end of her old age, she decided to auction off her possessions to see what she might be able to have come across. And she had this painting. It actually, in fact, was a painting of Jesus. It was called Christ Mocked. And it was hanging above her hot plate where she would cook in her home. And this appraiser came in and was going throughout her home and he saw this painting and he said, you know, I'm not a professional art dealer, but I think you might have something like really valuable here. You might want to go get that checked out. She said, okay, sure. So she takes it to a professional art dealer and he takes a look at this painting and he says, this is an authentic piece. There was a three-piece set and this piece has been missing since the 1500s. This piece called Christ Mocked. I think this painting's worth like $7 million. And she has it sitting above her hot plate in her kitchen. (laughs) So this woman, who wished to remain anonymous, I think for obvious reasons, decides to auction off the painting. She takes Christ Mocked. At auction, it fetches $26.8 million. $26.8 million. We're talking life-changing money. Her kids, kids, kids are set. And she's got it sitting in her kitchen above the hot plate. And I think that's what we're doing with Jesus all the time. He just sits in our life and we're familiar with him, we're unimpressed by him, and he is so much more valuable than $26.8 million. We don't take an honest and meaningful appraisal. John tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen, when that happened, we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we can read that and we think, okay, that's nice. Next verse. I want to challenge you this morning is you've got to see the glory of God And Jesus Christ coming and dwelling with us. That you would glorify him and know him and that you would worship him with all that you are. Because as Jesus and the glory of God is revealed to us in Christ, it is what has made him knowable. You cannot know God if it was not for the work of the Son making him known in the beginning through his creative work as the world was made through him. We see there in John 1 but also 
in his coming that he is the divine revelation of God. He is the apex of all revelation. Yeah, God has made himself known through the word and through the Bible so that we might know him, but he's also made himself known through the word, through Jesus, that he is the pinnacle of all his revelation, that we could see him and know him. Grace makes God known. Verses 16 through 18, it says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Hmm. I want you to look and see what that says there. It's from his fullness meaning all of God's attributes, all of God's resources, all of who God was. He made himself known in Jesus. And what does he say about Jesus? What does he say right there? We have all received grace upon grace. I don't know what your view of God is, what you think he thinks of you, what you think of him, But when all of his fullness comes crashing together, comes into this world, wraps itself in flesh, comes glory upon glory, more impressive than a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, what he says to you, what he's declaring to you is grace upon grace. That's who he is at his very core and who he is. He is gracious. He is kind. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He's committed to you. He loves you. He's never letting you go. That's who he is. His very core and all that he is. What he wants you to know about him is that he's grace upon grace. You see, the law was given through Moses, the commands of God, the commands of God that condemn us all. Nobody makes it in by their own righteousness. No one. Your bloodline doesn't matter. The will of your flesh can't get you there. The will that other people say about you can't get you there. The law condemns us, all of us, Every single one of us. The law is the manifestation of all of God's goodness. And when we're compared to all of God's goodness, we have to look and say, I don't measure up. But it doesn't stop there. The law was given through Moses. But listen, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He made a way for you when you could not make a way for yourself. He made it possible that you might know God and know him relationally because he didn't didn't just come give you grace and give you life. He came to give you himself, his own body crucified for you, his own life laid down for you and his resurrection power made manifested and dwelling within you because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the spirit that lives in you because you are the temple of God. And that is beautiful, and that is amazing, and that is what he has come to do. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author tells us this. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and having become as much superior to angels 
as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to reveal grace upon grace, to show you grace and truth, to show you the law that condemns you. He has fulfilled it. In him you might be found as righteous. And in all that he is, as the heir of all things, the one who has created the world, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the very heart of God put on display for us. And he came, and when he came, he spoke a better word to us. And his grace speaks to you today. See, when Jesus comes, he says things like, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says things like, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He would say things. Like greater love has no one for greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends. And finally, this is another example, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He came as a baby. You cannot separate Christmas from the rest of his life. He came to bring you grace, and that's the kind of God you serve. Those are the things that Jesus has to say to you. He doesn't tell you to buck up. He doesn't tell you to be better. He doesn't tell you to try harder. He tells you to trust him, that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, that he's gentle and lowly, that he loves to show you love. He has come as the one who could claim the right that everybody serve him, and instead, he has come to serve you and give his life for you. He has come and he calls you his friend, not his slave. And the God of the universe loves us and loves you so much that he sent his son that whoever believes in him should not die or perish, but whoever believes in him, whoever receives him, may have eternal life, may have the right to become a child of God, may be born again. You see, Jesus is the grace of God made known to us. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Grace upon grace. To know God is to know Christ his son and to know him intimately, to know him relationally, not just cognitively, but here in your heart. He knows you and he loves you and he's committed to you because you're his kid. You're his children. Sometimes sermons like this, we can say, what am I supposed to do now? You're supposed to just know. Know the God of the universe loves you so much that he sent his son for you. 
that Jesus came, and when he came, he didn't just come give you a gift. No, he came to give you himself, the greatest gift, that you might know him and the power of his resurrection, that you would know that he has called you his own. You are a child of God if you are in Christ Jesus. What should you do from the sermon? Know and rest. Trust. Be known. And that's what we need. I am so good at telling myself, man, I got to be righteous. I got to get it all together. I'll do it all right. But the gospel speaks a better word. It says you're already a son. You're already in. You're already accepted. You've already been qualified. My Father in heaven has done the work. The Son has lived the life that I couldn't live, died the death that I deserved. And when I am in Him, with my faith and trust in Him, I am wrapped fully in His righteousness and His righteousness alone. As always, we'll be at the back you're just looking for someone to talk to you, if you need help with one of those next steps in your life, we can schedule a time to talk later. I'm easy to get a hold of. My email is super easy to find. You can call me. You can come to our community groups Sundays at 4 or Thursdays at 6.30. We want to know you and we want to help you get to know Jesus better. We want to help you take those next steps in your life so you might know him and the power of his resurrection. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I love you because you first loved me. Help me, God, to know and rest in these promises and this goodness of, of your life that has been given to us, that you, the light and life of men, have come that all may have life. And life that is abundant and free. Eternal life is, it lasts forever, but it starts right now. You've come and you've made my life so much better by your presence, by your kindness. And Lord, that's just what I pray for these people, that you would change them, that you would know them, that they would come to know you deeper and deeper and deeper as you walk in this relationship with them that they would see that you are so committed to them to reveal what needs to be changed, but not to tell them to do better or be better, but because you are the one who gives enabling and empowering grace to change. And as we change to look more like you, we change in such a way that our capacity to love grows, our capacity to experience joy grows, our appreciation for life grows. Lord Jesus, what you have done for us in changing us is so good for us. God, I know that you are here and that you're moving in the lives of these people. Because of you, God, we're going to have better marriages. Because of you, God, we're going to have better relationships with our kids. Because of you, God, we're going to have better relationships with one another. Because of you, Lord, we're going to be more content. Because of you, we're going to be able to, to go and take those risks that you're calling us to take. 
because of you, God, we're going to have careers that are not about us and not climbing a ladder, but are about something more and better and more beautiful and greater. You literally have touched every aspect of this life when you came into the world and you declared through the mouths of heavenly hosts and angels, and we'll get to talk about next week, God, that peace on earth, glory to God in the highest, goodwill to men with those who have been well-pleased. We get to experience your goodwill. Jesus, you make life better, not easier, not simpler, but you make it better. You make it richer, deeper. And I'm so thankful for that. I want to worship you, Lord, for that. Help us sing because of that. Yes, it's in your name. Amen.